you can't accidentally name your company Cordial. We came up with the name because it really did go back to why did we want to do this in the first place? And it wasn't just about building a software company. We wanted to build an experience, something that elicits some level of emotion, some level of joy, an experience for people that they love. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Speaker Series Rewind. My name is Katherine Martin, and I'm on the marketing team here at High Alpha, and I'm super excited to share today's episode with you all. If you're new to the show, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series interviews featuring investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders across the country running everything from B2B software companies to packaged food startups and more. On today's episode, we're headed all the way back to December of 2019 for an interview with Jeremy Swift, CEO and co-founder of Cordial. Jeremy is joined by High Alpha partner Eric Tobias, and they discuss a variety of things, including the lessons Jeremy's learned building his first venture and how it's helped him with Cordial, which he's now been running for seven plus years, how he was able to push through difficult times and find the right work-life balance. And what I really love about this episode is Jeremy's focus on prioritizing mental health. And I think this is something that maybe we don't talk enough about, and it's great to see a leader talking about these things. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Good morning, everybody. Good to be here with you all. Yeah, so I'm a Portland, Oregon boy, born and raised. And uh, literally a, a mile outside of the campus of uh, where Nike's headquarters uh, is at. So was, that was pretty cool. I was born feeling like I had a tattoo of the swoosh on my arm. <laughs> I mean, it was it's just like bred into you being in that area, which is pretty interesting to uh, look back on now. But I grew up there and, you know, simple life in Portland, I would say. And I was about to follow the path that every person in my family at least is supposed to go on, which is you go to... Oregon State University, you become a beaver, <laughs> and I uh, don't know if you guys know Oregon State that well, but it's in a, what we would consider a small town of Corvallis, Oregon, farm country, and, uh, and that's just what you do is a rite of passage, and two weeks before I graduated high school, Tony Fadonzo, and I mean, this, this guy has no idea the mark that he's made on my life. I see him sitting in front of me in senior English class, and he's bragging about this school that he's going to, and he's got this brochure of this school. And I couldn't, I didn't know the name. I didn't know anything. I didn't even care. I just saw these pictures. And it was the school that their softball field, if you hit a home run, it goes into the Pacific Ocean. And I thought, oh my gosh, my parents have been lying to me my entire life. You actually have places like this you can go to college at. I just, I, I blew my mind. And so I, I said, what's, what's the name of that place? I went home that night. I plugged in my AOL CD, fired up the dial up. Not many people maybe remember that time period. Man, you are old. I know. I am old. And I applied. They actually had online applica- applications back then. I didn't tell my family. I got an acceptance letter in the mail three weeks later. My mom opened it up. I didn't know about it. She just bawled. I said, Mom, I'm leaving. I'm going to San Diego. I'd never been to San Diego before. And that was kind of the start of that journey for me. Wow. So uh, I was 18 and moved uh, to San Diego to this Small private school down there, 2,500 students, and that was kind of where the, that's, that's where San Diego began for me, but my roots are still in Portland at the end of the day, but Tony, yeah, San Diego's home. That's amazing. So who all has been to San Diego? Fair, fair amount of the audience. Clearly one of like the best places, not only in America, better Better choice to make, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Been Corvallis? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, you, you ended up graduating? 
Wow, that's. I don't think you even know the question. I don't. He doesn't. That's that's the beauty of these. You never know what's going to come up. Wow. Okay. I did not actually. I love it. I I I will save the maybe the entire story, but this is kind of ties into my professional career. I got wrapped up with a handful of guys that were buddies of mine in college. This was my junior year, and they had an idea for a. At the time, we called it an e-communications platform. We didn't know what else to call it. And, uh, if you threw E in front of anything, whatever. You were good. You, you were, were progressive good. at that you, point you in time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so they had this idea. Lo and behold, it was, uh, it was an email marketing software platform. And uh, I wanted to do anything other than academics. And so I jumped on board with that and it started running with them and building this business. And... Thankfully, I had some great college professors that didn't let me bail out. I had some great mentors there and said, we'll help you figure this out. We'll help mm-hmm. you get to the finish line. Like they did nearly, they did 99% of the work. I, I went on the six-year path to be able to graduate from college because we're building this business. And that was, frankly, what I was more interested in at the end of the day. But I kept doing it, plugging away, taking night classes. I'd put my out-of-office on in the middle of the day, and I'd drive back to campus and jump into a communications class and then run back to the office and take my out of office down. And I, I got to walk. I made it all the way to the finish line. My mom cried. She <laughs> thought I graduated. It was a fake diploma they give you, as we all know, when you walk across the stage at my university. And I was one, one class credit away from graduating. And it was the internship class. And the internship was... The company that I was in the middle of building. That's amazing. And I never filled out the handbook on the internship <laughs> class. And so still to this day, I actually still have that handbook. It's like, you know. It's That's amazing. Symbolic, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm not completing something. I'm not exactly sure. But it's, so I just, I still need to go turn that handbook in and get credit for that class. And then I'll actually get a diploma. So thanks for teeing that up. Uh, yeah. I, I am not a college graduate now. Well, what's interesting about this is you and I, there's a lot of similarities in our past in, in, in that story. And, and I think many people know my favorite band is the Counting Crows. The lead singer Excellent of the Counting Crows went to Berkeley and decided at the point, I think it was 120 credit hours to graduate, and he had 117 credit hours. And uh, he decided, ah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And I'm going <laughs> to just let that dangle for, for the rest of my life. And uh, I think there's something like noble about that. Now, those in the room that you know, have a different view on education probably would argue with we you. We could and debate I, that. But, yeah. Um, but, but that's cool. You always knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur or this yeah. guy. Yeah. So, what, what were some of the things that led you to that discovery earlier in your life? Yeah. I mean, my parents always said that I was adopted. They didn't really know where I came from because my dad just retired a few years ago. Well, both, both my parents did. My mom was operating room nurse for 40 years, same hospital. My dad was an inside salesman for an electrical supply company for 42 years, same job, same everything. And so they don't, they don't know what happened to me. I mean, I was in high school and you get that question in high school, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I just, I, I didn't even know what I was saying, but I just said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And I mean, 1995, people are like, what is that? What are you talking about? And I I didn't even know what path I wanted to go down with that. Just knew I wanted to build things. But I also knew and found out later in life, though, too, that I didn't want to build things alone. I wanted to build things with other people. Hmm. And that that was really important to me. I, I have 
incredible respect for the solo founders out there. I actually have no idea how they do what they do because uh, for me, it's it's actually about it's about the process, but it's about doing it with other people and going on that journey with them. So yeah, so yeah, I, I think I knew pretty early on that that's what I wanted to do, and so when this uh, the opportunity with these other buddies in college came up, it was. I didn't even care what it was. Yeah. It was, I mean, we could have been starting a juice company for all I knew. I was like full tilt. I just wanted to be a part of building something. E-juice would have been e-juice. E-juice, e-juice. yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're, so you find yourself in this spot where you've got some buddies and you're cranking away. You're kind of at the end of the college journey. Kind of take us through those first few years and, and what happens from there. You're, you're in a, you know, what was, was Blue Hornet, kind of what Blue Hornet became? Was that the original vision? Was there a vision? Did you just kind of, you know, yeah. figure out a customer and then a second customer? And how, how did it go in those early days? Yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, every every entrepreneur's story is is unique at the end of the day, which I should just say, I feel like I'm in enemy, enemy territory here as well. <laughs> I was walking over here and I'm thinking, man, I've got, got Salesforce here. I've got Cheetah Digital here. I've got Imarsis here. Yeah. I was wondering if MarTech Capital of the There US. were going to be like red lights that would show up on me on stage here or something. <laughs> uh, You're safe. It's okay. Yeah? It's yeah? Okay. All right. All right. We didn't know. I mean, that, that, was, that was kind of the, the beauty of it is there was no competitive analysis. We actually thought we were the only ones with the idea for probably a couple of years, too. Lo and behold, you know, these <laughs> Yahoo's over at Exact Target and Silver Pop and Responsis and Cheetah Mail and all these. There's all these other people that are doing the exact same thing that we're trying to do. We didn't take any time to even do competitive analysis. And frankly, you think back then to 99, 2000, you do a Google search. You're like tabbing through pages to actually get to the right kind of content you might want to get to. But yeah. we thought we were just kind of charting our own path. And so we figured out bit by bit. We were, we were introduced by the university to a local angel investor. And part of his deal with us was, I'll keep writing you $40,000 checks to invest in your business as long as you guys go out and validate what you guys are doing with nonprofits and churches throughout San Diego. Hmm. And we went to a private school, so we thought, ah, that's, you know, that's not the most egregious ask to make. But once you get into it, too, you realize churches and nonprofits don't want to pay a lot of money for anything. <laughs> and so that was, that was tough sledding for us. But if I look back... Uh, I kind of love the ask that he made it made of us there because the reality is if you can sell to people who don't have budget to pay for what you're trying to sell them, you can probably go and sell this to just about anybody at that point. And so we were fortunate. We Blue Hornet became the de facto e-communications platform for literally every church and nonprofit throughout San Diego. Hmm. And uh, so we kept getting $40,000 checks because of that and uh, kind of kept charting our path. And uh, so those early early years they were lean. We were trying to figure out where to go. All of a sudden, we had one of our first big clients was TGI Fridays. Oh, nice. At a time when building an email list was kind of a novel, novel idea. Uh, we helped them build their, their TGI Fridays e-club, mm. right? Yeah. And so then all of a sudden, TGI Fridays came. And so then all of a sudden, Darden came. So we had Red Lobster and Olive Garden. And oh, my goodness. I mean, you think of every single name in the restaurant and hospitality business we largely had them outside of a competitor we found that had cropped up out of Atlanta area, I think, or Virginia called Fishbowl. And lo and behold, though, too, we start becoming the, the email company strictly for serving restaurants. 
<laughs> and uh, so we had to start diversifying ourselves and actually starting to think strategically about, all right, what's our vertical strategy around here? And how do we think about not just being opportunistic about what's coming to us, but how do we think about what we're going after ourselves and being intentional about how we grew the business? And we, I mean, I would say we were stumbling our way through that entire process. We were young, young kids, some still in college, hmm. and we ended up getting some offers for the business fairly early, actually, in the cycle of this whole world. In 2003, we got a, an offer that came in from a competitor out of Canada that we ended up not moving forward with. Then uh, about six, nine months later, Digital River, which was a publicly traded e-commerce company up in Minneapolis, uh, came pretty hard at us, and we decided that was the, the right path at that uh, point in time was to sell the business to them. And so in 2004, we ended up selling the company to Digital River and did a three-year earnout and whatnot. And lo and behold, we were actually sitting on a pretty hot category that was just still in its infancy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the story has been told in other ways of other companies that took other paths around here. But I wouldn't trade the, the path that we went on for anything it's been remarkable, and I'm super grateful for it. But at the same time, it, it is funny. Hindsight's 2020, and you look back and you go, "Man, this whole thing of e-communications and email marketing turned into a pretty big deal yeah, out there." I think it's going to stick. I, I think <laughs> it'll be around for a little bit. Yeah. yeah, there's so many nuggets in that story for for people in the room. So we've a lot of entrepreneurs, both you know, working in high alpha and and, and beyond here in the community. And and one of the things I think that we struggle with in Indianapolis is you've got a handful of of, of large companies, obviously Salesforce and, and others, and then a lot of startup activity, not much in the middle. And one of the reasons there's not much in the middle, and, and I'm an example of this, is you know you, you have a company and it starts working, and somebody comes along and makes you an offer, and it's life changing, and you know you it, it makes sense to say yes to that. Yeah. One of the things that we're trying to do in our ecosystem is help companies and really entrepreneurs think much bigger, much more ambitious about what they can build and what they can be a part of. How much of the, of, of the experience you just articulated at Blue Hornet has gone into the way that you're now running Cordial and kind of how you're thinking about the second opportunity? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a powerful question because it's, it's very real for us. First off, the question myself and some of my other co-founders often get is, why are you guys crazy enough to do this a second time? You guys are a glutton for punishment within this category, I guess. But we love it. We love uh, this space. And I think back in 2014, when we when we started Cordial, we believed that there was kind of a there was another wave. There was kind of a second generation of this category that was that was going to take place. And we believed we had so much maybe like unfinished business from the first go-round too. Yeah. Again, as I said, I, I don't regret the path that we chose in terms of when we took our exit. The fact that we even got one, I, I just feel so fortunate and blessed yeah. by that. And I think that's, it's really important to remember those things and to be honest about those things because, and, and to not think so often in the, the software and startup community in general, there's only a perceived, there's a perceived one path to success or and it's the big exits and everything else in between is kind of like you just didn't really make it and that's not true like entrepreneurship is really hard building companies are really really hard and very few companies are fortunate to be able to get to a point where you can actually uh, sell the business and and get a, get a decent return on it and whatnot so I think through that process though, having the opportunity to go and do it a second time, we definitely said, all right, like, 
what are some things that we want to think about and do differently about our culture? Adam and Chris, which two of my co-founders that are here, we, I mean, I've spent now almost 20 years with these guys. And to have that opportunity to be able to sit down and go, all right, well, what would we do differently? What would we do differently about how we build culture and how we think about our people and this environment that we want to create? Is that where you started? Like when you, when you thought, all right, we're going to do this again, you started with thinking about culture before you even started thought about product or customers or we, I mean, we always tinker on products. I mean, we, like, whether we were thinking about building a new company or not, we, we were always tinkering on ideas with that. So that was somewhat intrinsic. But, I mean, it's, I tell people, you, you can't accidentally name your company Cordial. Like, you probably should find a different or better name if you're looking for a software company name out there. But we went down the traditional path of thinking about, like, names that were descriptive of a software company, but we came up with the name Cordial because it really did go back to why did we want to do this in the first place? And it wasn't just about building a software company. It was we wanted to build an experience. We wanted to build something that elicits some level of emotion, some level of joy out of people, an experience for people that they that they love and they enjoy being a part of. And that might sound crazy altruistic to some folks, but for folks that had already gone down this path once before with a company, and frankly, missed in a bunch of different areas. And if you have the chance to rewrite that story for yourself, for us, the name of Cordial and the definition, so much of the rooting of that went into what we wanted to create again. And it wasn't just about building software. It was about an experience. It was about the relationships that we wanted to create with amongst ourselves, with a team that we wanted to grow and, and do it much more expansively. Because I, I, do, I do intentionally use that language. I think we took an we took the early off-ramp with our business before. I don't think it was the wrong decision, but I just think that if you look at the category and you have hindsight on it, we did take one of the earlier off-ramps within that category. And to be able to have a chance to go back into that space, have a a bunch of hindsight that you can bring forward into that, uh, yeah, we have much bigger aspirations for what we're doing and what we're creating now as a company. But that's not just... With, with an exit in mind for the company, it's, it really is about the experience that we're trying to create amongst our people. And we're doing it imperfectly. We are far from great about that. But we know that at least our hearts are in the right place in terms of what we're trying to do there. And if we're honest and transparent and authentic, we believe with each other and with our teams, uh, we believe that, that just bleeds out into everything that we're trying to do. And I think honesty, transparency, vulnerability, all are really important characteristics about trying to build a company at the end of the day. Yeah. It's one of the things I admire so much about Jeremy as a leader. And we'll, we'll, I, I want to talk about each one of those three because there's a lot there to unpack. One of the things that I think many entrepreneurs, and we struggle with as high alpha as well, you, you look at a category like you know, digital communication, email, mobile messaging, and you think, gosh, there's 82 companies. There's a really big one. There's a couple really big ones in the space. Uh, sure seems crowded. How is there room for another? And yet, you know, there's obviously room for others. How did you and, and your co-founders get conviction that this was a space worth re-entering, that there was an opportunity to, to, to be different, to do something unique, and that, that you could carve enough of space out to do that? Yeah, yeah. I... You obviously never know, right? I mean, every, every good entrepreneur sets out to do something without a lot of answers or clarity on what that path in front of them is. But 
this is, I think, one of the very fortunate things or special things for us at Cordial is we, since we'd done this once before, we acutely knew all the mistakes that we'd made before. And frankly, some of those were not even just mistakes that we, uh, if we were in that same time and place, we would have done it differently. Some of it was just time and space too. You think of building software companies back in 99 or 2000, there was no such thing as cloud. There was no such thing as a mobile device, at least in the form factor that we think about it. Like the world was just different. Hardware, software capabilities, all of that was completely different. And so naturally just what you're building at the time, there's just built-in constraints around that. And so we were fortunate In, in 2013 when we started meeting in coffee shops on nights and weekends together and kind of ideating on, yeah, what, if, what would this look like if we did go and do something together? Uh, there was so much clarity for us around, well, we'd go do this differently, we'd build this architecture differently, and we'd think about it more expansively. At the time, it was, we're going to build an email platform in 2000, but in 2014, when we built Cordial, it was, it's not, this isn't just, we're not building an email platform, we're building a platform that can consume data from all of these disparate sources, interactions that are happening in physical places and environments, all the way down to devices that consumers are walking around with. And we knew, we knew because we were walking through RFPs with brands, we knew what they were asking for. We knew why brands were churning and leaving our former company as well as our competitors within the space. We were living it. I think Forrester came out with a stat back in 2013 that said a third of all companies were switching their ESP every single year. And that was just an egregious stat to us. I mean, we thought, if that's happening, there's clearly an opportunity to do something different within the space. And, uh, and so, I, you know, we didn't know where that was going to go, but we believed that everything that we were building, we knew that there was a need for it, strictly because we'd walked through so many experiences and use cases with clients. And I think that was, that is the pinch point for that. It wasn't just our idea of what we thought. It was this was all predicated of what, off of what the market, what, what were marketers saying they liked and didn't like or needed and didn't have available to them in the market. We said, well, let's, let's go build that. Let's start there. And then we'll just keep our ear to the ground, keep listening, and then keep iterating from there. And lo and behold, in you know, 14, 15, we didn't really know. There were a couple of us that were trying to figure this out and see if there was something that would stick in this market and if the market was really open to a new wave of technology around this, which is hard when you've got companies like Salesforce and Oracle and Adobe and IBM at the time who'd all made massive investments in this space. Honestly, I mean, we we had people all day long, investors who said, you guys are crazy. (laughs) I mean, there's no way you're going to go beat Salesforce or Adobe or Oracle at their own game around this. But, you know, we just kept chipping away at it. And lo and behold, there's, I mean, there's a real market that is really formed around kind of this idea of next-gen cross-channel technology within our space now. And I mean, it's in 14, you thought, oh, I don't really know. Well, again, hindsight, you look back and you go, man, there's, there's a real space here and a real category that we're going after. And we feel really fortunate. We're one of a small handful of players that I think have really started to carve out a really material uh, kind of path for ourselves within this space. So a lot of work ahead still. Yeah. Well, kudos for having that vision. Obviously, we are excited about that vision and believe in that vision. And we're, we're investors in Jeremy's business. And the... That this idea, we, we call it fresh tech here at High Alpha, but, but there's you know, a lot of ways to describe it. But this idea that software that was built 15, 20 years ago, you know, the architecture, the underlying 
principles of the way that that software was built and what it therefore the problems it can solve are very different than the problems that need to be solved today. And we see this across industries and marketing is a really interesting one because the way that consumers interact with these experiences are changing, as you alluded, physical and digital. One of the questions I know that my partner Scott has been asked 10,000 times is email, you know, is email dying? What's your take on that, you know, with Slack and other tools that are trying to kind of change the way we collaborate and communicate? Is, is email dying? It's like the million dollar question right there. Yeah. I mean, if Scott's been asked it 10,000 times, maybe I'm only a thousand. I don't know. But I mean, we, we've been asked it for a, at least a decade, at least since Facebook came out. I mean, I think Facebook was supposed to be the death of email. Uh, hey, I, when one of our engineers brought Slack to our organization it, to Cordial, maybe nine months in, I thought, this tool is awful. I can't even stand the thought of using a, a tool like this. I send my communications via email to people. <laughs> and she just kept here. She's like, you do not get it, Jeremy. Like, I will not respond to your emails if you keep sending them to me that way. And she was right. To this day, if you send, uh, we call her A-dub, if you send her an email, that's a black hole. You will get nothing <laughs> out of her. You send her a Slack, immediate response from her. Yeah. So we use Slack. It, I mean, it, it, our business lives on that, as most do now. But that did not change the consumer world, and it's fascinating. So to answer your question directly, email is not dead. You don't get to control those, those, the winds of consumer sentiment and other new technologies and mediums that people are going to communicate within. That, that's probably the scariest part about stepping into any business. You don't get to control the bigger macro climate and trends around that. But especially with a piece of uh, a channel like email that had been around for so long, too, and had heard these rumors for 10 years of, is this thing going to die? Reality is email, it's crazy. It is, it is hotter than it's ever been right now. It's crazy. And I don't say that from a place of posturing because that's a core channel that we deliver on. It, it just works. It just works. And just works. all the world about or talk about millennials, they don't use email. I'm sorry. Like Eventually, you do mm-hmm. graduate or you move into some sort of job. Like, I can't say that honestly any longer. You move into a job and you have to use email. And the yeah. reality is, I mean, emails, it's a power channel still. It is, it is the workhorse channel for all brands still. There's other channels that are great. SMS is a really hot channel right now. Super high open rates, great response rates. But it's fractional in terms of its footprint compared to email. And frankly, probably, it, it will be for a very, very long time. Yeah. And... Millennials who don't open emails, well, geez, we've got uh, an incredibly younger-focused demographic company in Revolve that's a client of ours, and email is the workhorse engine. It drives a massive part of their revenue. It was a significant part of their S1 when they just went public back in June, Hmm. and talking about the level of personalization, the capabilities, and what they're doing around that channel it was that material to them to, to be referenced within the S1. And we take a lot of pride in that. That's really exciting to be the backbone from a technology perspective of companies like that. But email is not that. It's super hot. It's, it's one channel of an experience that we are helping brands be able to stitch together and do that very effectively. So there's consistency across all those channels. That's really hard to do. Yeah. But at the end of the day, man, email, email keeps doing its thing. It's just amazing 
I think it's an amazing lesson for those of us who are in the business of investing in or starting companies. You know, you're so often chasing the next thing. And sometimes mm. the next thing is just a better version of the current thing. Mm. I saw a stat recently that like 70% of all the unicorns are in existing categories. You know, That's fascinating. It, it is. And I think it, it, yeah. you know, it confirms everything that you're doing. Let's talk about leadership and, and kind of some of the, the things that you've learned along the journey of both Blue Hornet and now, now Cordial. You know, it's, it, 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 it's tough to be the CEO. You are in the CEO seat for the first time. What's been the biggest surprise about the role and the, and the day-to-day job that maybe you didn't expect when you weren't the CEO? Uh, yeah, I mean, Eric and I haven't talked about, there was no rehearsing on this at all, but Eric. Eric love it. Spent, live theater. Yeah, I know. Yeah, here we go. Eric and I have spent, uh, yeah, some time talking about these types of topics just broadly and, and also very specifically about kind of my journey within this too. But I think the biggest is, frankly, navigating and trying to exhibit wisdom, discipline, and judgment with all of the inputs that are coming in. And uh, I think so often, and especially early on in a business, it's, I mean, it, the amplification of that grows at an inordinate rate as, as the business grows or as the category grows that you're a part of. And I don't think I knew that and realized that going in. I think I just thought, ah, this, this is just going to be fun. And, you know, I'm just, we're just building a company. And when there was when there's only nine of us as a seed funded company that were doing that, I just none of that was there really. And yeah, I've got a really kind of raw side of that story for myself that I've had to kind of work through and and figure out my level of just what I how I share that. And if you don't mind, I mean, I'll I'll kind of go into a piece of it. it. It's and it actually directly ties to to high alpha here too is I didn't know any of that was there. I thought this was just a lot of fun building a company with people you, you, you love building a company with. And we closed our Series A round. It'll be three years ago this February. And it was a guy named Kobe Fuller who was actually participated in the Series A investment in a small company called Exact Target a number of years ago. And he's, he's amazing. He's with Upfront Ventures in Santa Monica. They're probably one of the hottest, if not the leading VC in Southern California. And our route to just get to that conversation and how that happened, that's for another day. But we felt so fortunate and blessed. And all of a sudden, up front's an investor. I, I believe we were the first San Diego company to for upfront to invest in. Hmm. And so then all of a sudden the San Diego community is like, wow, how did, how did Cordial get up front to actually invest in a company here in San Diego? And uh, then I end up at their conference. They do an annual summit. And I, Kobe says, hey, I've got this guy I want to introduce you to. I'm sure you've met him before. His name's Scott Dorsey. I said, no, I've never met Scott before, actually. We, we competed against each other for years, but we never, we never met. Scott and I sat down and I kind of broke bread that night at the event and just traded war stories for about three hours with each other. And it was awesome. We just laughed about you know, all sorts of deals that we were in over the years and just what that journey and process was, how he did it uh, you know, with raising a family and what that process was like. Because at the time, I'd, we just had our fourth was born. 
And so I'm thinking, you know, everybody's looking at me too, going, you just had a fourth kid. You're trying to build a kind of like, what is wrong with this guy? He does, he does not have all his wires connected. And, and so super fortunate through that conversation that led us into engaging with High Alpha and High Alpha ended up participating in that round with us. And I, you know, I'm thinking this is, the, this, is, this is such an exciting moment to be able to have these folks who have such domain expertise with, obviously, specifically within our category. And all of a sudden, the announcements started coming out. You know, you do the press releases about your round and all those things. And our team is fired up about it. And all of a sudden, something just started hitting me. And I didn't know what it was. And I didn't know how to describe it. And because I'd never experienced it before. But it was that moment of almost like terrible analogy. But it's like uh, a gopher. You're, you're building tunnels underground as a, as a seed stage company. Nobody really knows who you are. Nobody really cares what you're doing. You're just doing your thing. And then all of a sudden, you, you raise capital. But in our case, we raised capital from people who had a bunch of notoriety around the category that we were in. And all of a sudden, people, it was like our head, you know, we, we dug that hole up and we stuck our head up and all these people started hmm. coming at me in really wonderful ways. But it was, oh, wow, Jeremy, you know, high alpha investing. You know, Kobe investing, you guys, man, whew, here we go. A lot of pressure. Man, it hit. Yeah. And I didn't even know. I didn't even, I didn't know how to define it or describe what was going on. And all I knew is, to be really honest, I was walking in the front door every single night and I was, by my standards and by my wife's standards, I, I was not the kind of husband that I wanted to be and should be. I was walking in the door, as best as I can describe it, just feeling red. All, that's all I felt and saw. I couldn't, I couldn't shut down. I, like I'd walk in with my phone and I'd, my kids would want to play with me and... My wife wanted, rightfully so, some sort of break. She wanted to hand off, you know, our, our baby to me. And I, I had no capacity. Her kids would want me down on the floor playing with them. And I'm, you know, playing, but I'm looking at my phone and seeing if emails are coming in. And I couldn't turn it off. And I, I felt angry. I felt, I just felt like a bad version of myself. And I didn't know how to describe it. And it, was, it frankly, it was just getting worse. And I was walking into the office every single day. Teams fired up. They're like, full steam ahead. You know, man, we've got all this great investment. We're going for it. And I was walking in, sitting down every day going, I don't know what I should be doing right now. Hmm. And it was scary. It was a scary time. My wife was scared. My wife was scared. Like, what happened to my husband? Where'd he go? And what's, what's, what's going to happen here with us? And there's honest realities that go on with those situations. And frankly, so fast forward to that. My wife, God bless her. She's an amazing woman. She, after a couple of months of this, we went to Disneyland of all places and my wife and I with our kids, we spent two days at Disneyland and we didn't speak a word to each other the entire time we were there outside of who's changing the diaper. <laughs> and if you can't, if you go to Disneyland, and you don't talk to your wife for two days, something's wrong. <laughs> this is the happiest place on earth, supposedly. Most, Allegedly. Most parents with kids might disagree with that. But. Yeah. <laughs> and so we got home and my wife sat me down and, and she's scared and thinks that I'm, you know, you know, hitting the eject button or something. And she, but she had this moment of grace for me. And she said, I don't know exactly what's going on with you, but I feel like you've carried me for the first 10 years of our marriage. And I feel like it's time that I carry you. Wow. And I sobbed harder than I ever have in my entire life. Literally just hearing those words from her just crushed me in the, in the greatest sense. And she said, I think you, you need help. We need help. Like, I want, I want you to be able to do this journey well. 
And so I went and found a therapist and uh, not a coach. I found a therapist. I found, and I was intimidated. I was scared by that uh, because therapy growing up in my household was a four letter word. You didn't talk about therapy. Therapists were for people who didn't have it all together. And I, and I know that even more implicitly because I jumped into that. And by the time I got uh, a couple months into that, we went home for the summer to visit family for a little bit. And I'm fired up about my therapy journey now that I'm going on and trying to work through this stuff. And uh, I tell my parents about it. And my mom just starts crying. <laughs> she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were that broken. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, it's great, mom. This yeah. is good. She's like, it's okay, son. I understand. <laughs> In my house, we call that the untherapized. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. So it, it's a long story, but it's, it's frankly become such a key part. And that was two and a half years ago. And Charlie's my therapist. And I go and see, I saw Charlie every week for six months uh, because I needed it. I, you need help on this journey. It doesn't just come together like a perfect puzzle. And so I see Charlie every two weeks now. And he's an important part of hopefully me being not just a better CEO. That, that's not my first priority. My first priority is to be a better husband. My second priority is to be a better father to my kids. And then my third priority is to be the best kind of leader I can for our company. But so it's a long answer to a really short question. But that's, I mean, that's been the journey of what being a first-time CEO has looked like for me. And I think I've had to be really honest about that because I have a lot of other peers around me who it's still fairly taboo. People don't like to talk about it. People yep. don't like to talk about therapy. Um, they'd rather talk about their coach. Yeah. And uh, coaches are good too, and they're really important. But I think it's important to also make sure that we're distinguishing between the two because they, are, they serve a very different purpose. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So applicable to all of us. You and I have had a real kinship here. I think we have, have been on similar paths yeah. in different circumstances over the last several years. But one of the things I love about Jeremy is just the ability to, to, to be vulnerable and to tell your story. Mm-hmm. One of the mistakes I think a lot of entrepreneurs make, and I was talking with a couple of them yesterday about this, we all make a lot of mistakes. And guys and gals that end up on stages to tell their stories, you know, people really often want to hear about, gosh, how'd you, how'd you end up selling Blue Hornet? That's amazing. And How'd you get Kobe to invest? And we, 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 we tell the, the success stories. What we don't talk about is, you, you know, Jeremy, tell me the 450 times you fucked up at Blue Hornet. <laughs> you know, because, because that's also true. Amen. And, and so I love the fact that, you know, you're, you're willing and able to share both sides of the, of the coin. I think that that uh, is inspiring for all of us because we're all trying to figure it out every day. You, you mentioned when your wife came to you with 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 grace, I think was the word you used. And it's a, it's a wonderful moment. I, mean, I feel myself really feeling the emotion of, of that moment just in you telling it. How has that maybe influenced the way that you now deal with your leadership team, people in the company? Because while different circumstances than the one you described, there are always challenges inside of a business, right? Somebody's not performing, Somebody's, you know, struggling with something that they really want to figure out. We can't get this customer that we, there's always challenges and struggles. That moment of grace, how has that changed the way that you think about leading others? Yeah, that, that, that time period, I mean, I, it's, I could kind of say it's like two chapters already of Cordial 
for me. And it's really two chapters of myself within this business. And not that I was a worse version of myself, the first half, if you will. There was obviously that, that pinch point there that occurred. But you can't go, I, I couldn't go through that and that not change who I, who I am moving forward. But what that doesn't mean, too, is that you have it figured out and that you do it, do it well all the time, too. And grace is such a tricky thing because you want to be able to do it well often. You want to be able to make the right decision often. And, and I don't always. We don't always. We're, we are all fallible people at the end of the day trying to figure these things out. And whether you're a... Uh, multi-time entrepreneur that's done things over and over and you've had a bunch of exits. I mean, heck, we've talked about that here with you guys at High Alpha. Like, you guys are still figuring new things out and, you know, evolving yourselves personally too. So it's, it's tricky, but I, I, it's given me a whole different perspective for instead of, I think, judging the situation on the surface for what it is with a person or an individual, my wife double-clicked into me and said, I mean, she could have just said, this guy's off the rails and yeah, I'm, out. I'm out. And she didn't. She had, she had the patience. She had the grace after months of dealing with me to then like really dig deep down inside and go, I think you need me to carry you. Like that, that's a life-changing moment. So in turn, usually what's going on is not just what you see on the surface, whether it's with folks on my leadership team or with folks on their team. And, I, and we talk about those things in personal situations. And not every situation is the same. Every situation has a different twist and color to it. But it's something that we talk about. It's kind of part of our values. We've got four key values at Cordial. First one is to communicate better than the rest. Second is to act like an owner. Third is be tenacious about our clients and the problems we solve for them. And the fourth is to just be cordial. Hmm. And for years, people that come to the company and join, they go, like, what, it, what it, I, I get the definition of the first year, but what does be cordial mean? And we've tried for years, I feel like, to wrap definition around that. And my COO, Ben, when he joined the company, he was the first one to really say, he's like, be cordial is undefinable. It just is. You, you are or you aren't. Yeah, you know it when you see it. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's, a, that's an important part of what we're trying to do is a, you could probably insert words like grace into that of what being cordial means. But that's super tricky at the end of the day because how to balance grace with making tough decisions and being able to move quickly in a fast-paced growing business. If anybody has the perfect answer <laughs> or template to that, like... Please, I'd love to talk to you afterwards because that is the struggle there. I think that's where the rub is yes. and where I feel conflict constantly. And I'm sure, I, I know my leaders do at times too because either your past history or what you hear often, the voices out there, is just make a tough decision totally. and just go. Yeah. And people get left in the wake yeah. constantly. Yeah. If you don't have enough pause and wherewithal to try and figure out where that balances and how do I care about the person, but also do what's right for my business, Super really hard. hard to do. Super hard. And I don't know about you, the times I get in the most trouble are when I'm not stopping, when I'm, when I'm the pace that in which we all work, and, and frankly, that is required, required. in yeah. order to, to, to be competitive and to, to, to stay alive. 
you know, when you allow that to, to somehow kind of just let the river flow and versus being very present, being very mindful that, that somebody's got a story on the other side of that yeah. and, and taking the time to figure that out. You've got so much positive stuff going on at Cordial. What's the thing you're most excited about for 2020, both personally and then professionally? Personally, our, ki- our kids are at an age now where my wife and I feel like we're, we're really living life with them right now. Our, our baby that was born early on with Cordial, she's three and a half. She'll be four early this next year. And so we're at a place in life where we're, we're like, my wife and I have kind of earmarked 2020 to say, this, this is the year where we get to go live life as a family. For those that have kids out there, you know, there, there's a point where you can kind of go, we can go out in public again. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can go stay in a hotel and, you know, you can tell everybody to just hopefully generally go to sleep. No more cribs anymore, no more diapers and whatnot. So I personally, we're, we're excited to live life. We're excited to, um, excited to do a lot of camp- camping and a lot of fishing and a lot of stuff outdoors that, at least for us, has felt next to impossible with young kids. And professionally, we're this next year, it's, I, I'm always trying to be careful of not projecting too much out there mm-hmm. so that then there's unrealistic expectations for our team because we have... We have an incredible team that, man, they, they go for it. They go hard. And, but this is a really, this feels like an inflection year for us, for our category, frankly. A ton of capital has flown into our category. And we have done, we spent a lot of intensive time in 2019 building some really, really incredible capabilities from a cross-channel messaging perspective hmm. that are highly unique within the marketplace and 20, 2019 was a year where when you're building that, that feels like a hard year because when you're doing it, you haven't realized the potential of all of that. 2020 is, I, I, I think I can say that. We're going to look back on that year and go, that was the year where so much of what we did came together in this beautiful way that just, if we thought that the business had taken off already, I just believe that this next year is a year where it's really going to take off in a unique and different way. And frankly, how our team is then gelling around those four core values. And it's not, they're not on our, our walls. You're never going to see them on our walls because they're not something that we're trying to, we're not trying to market our yeah. values. Yeah. But the best thing is when you just hear people talk about it, like it just comes out intrinsically in conversations. And I feel like that's when you know that it's, it's rooted itself somewhere. And I just believe that we've got an incredible bedrock of our culture that is ready for that growth then, ready to take that on, ready for this explosion that I, you know, just feel blessed that hopefully we'll be able to take on and do it well and do it with grace in 2020. It's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to do this. I think you've been My honor. incredibly inspirational. It's, it's no wonder that you've been successful and will continue to be successful. You're an amazing leader. And Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate you sharing the story. Thanks please, so much. Please join me in thanking you. This episode is brought to you by Cordial. Cordial is the intelligent cross-channel marketing platform for customer-obsessed brands like Revolve, 1-800-CONTACTS, and Backcountry. Cordial enables these organizations to collect all of their unstructured customer and business data from wherever it lives in the tech stack and use that data to build audience segments, discover trends and insights, and automate hyper-personalized customer experiences at enterprise scale. For more information on Cordial, 
visit cordial.com. That's C-O-R-D-I-A-L.com. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews. It'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.